Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Eric Williams, the Natural Resources Planner at the Papua Missouri River Natural Resources District and the elected official for Subdivision 6 of the Omaha Public Power District. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom, and we're recording this the week of rolling blackouts across the prairies in the Midwest and an energy emergency. Eric Williams grew up in Omaha and earned degrees in civil engineering, as well as studio arts from Rice University. He currently works as the natural resources planner at the Papio Missouri River Natural Resources District and has been active with several community-based environmental organizations over the past decade. Eric was elected to the Board of Directors at Omaha Public Power District in 2018, with a focus towards policies related to climate change and successfully continuing the clean energy transition, while maintaining affordable and reliable power for people and businesses in our community. He and his partner Christine live in Dundee with their Rescue Mutt, Katie. Eric, welcome to the show. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks very much. I do know that we want to point out that you're here with all of those experiences and those roles that we just described in your bio, but any views you're expressing with me today are are your own and they don't represent the organizations that that you have um, any leadership or other role with. Yep, that's right. I'm speaking just for myself, not the board or all of OPPD, just for Eric today. I'm really excited to talk with you about that um, so often we take for granted flicking the switch, having warmth, uh, being able to cook our food. Tragic as it is, uh, not least because millions of people are suffering right now uh, in Texas as we're recording this, but also people have died. It's a shame that it's taken this for this to become more present in our public discourse. So, So I know we're going to get to that, but I wonder if maybe we take a step back and I'll ask you, where did this passion come from? Where did your concern for the the natural world emerge from? I don't think there's one particular time. Um, I've thought about this in the past, and and I remember as a child spending a lot of time outdoors, um, climbing around in the bushes uh, behind our house, making a little fort. Um, I was really into uh, ropes and pulleys. Um, We would build a zip line in our front yard between a couple trees in the summer. Um, Probably not the kind of thing most parents would like to see kids doing these days. It was less safe than I think uh, most people would uh, would appreciate, but um, I, I came out okay. I think only once did someone fall out of the tree and, and it wasn't me. But yeah, I spent a lot of time outdoors as a kid. In thinking back, I, I don't remember a time when I wasn't specifically interested in outdoors and the natural environment. And uh, from some of the history of climate change, for example, there isn't really a time in my life when climate change was not scientific fact or that we didn't understand that we need to uh, conserve resources, reduce waste, and protect uh, the natural world in which we all live. So, I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting question, you know, is there a particular time? No, I think it's just kind of always been a part of my life. And so I guess that means it came from my family and, uh, and from, my, um, from my youth and has continued uh, into my adulthood. 
were there moments when uh, you sort of awakened to this idea that your relationship with the natural world around you, this kind of playful, curious, exploratory relationship with it was either unusual or perhaps was a relationship that, that others seemed around you to really not be paying attention to? My partner, Christine, has joked with me, and, and the first time she said it, I kind of took it as a, you know, somewhat of an insult. Or I, I don't, that, was, that was my first response, but she has described me as having childlike wonder. I don't know. It's an interesting thing to hear as an adult, but the more times I've thought about it, I would say that is, I mean, that is basically how I interact um, with the natural world. I am continually in awe of things that I see, and uh, I really enjoy new experiences. And so going on um, vacation and finding new Physical spaces, both in the human world and in the natural world, is always um, just awe-inspiring to me. Um, you know, I, would I like to go back to the same place a second time or go to somewhere new? Man, that's a tough choice for me because there's so, so many places uh, that I have not yet experienced. And so um, I think it's, uh, it's something that I guess it, I, I have in more abundance than others. Um, as a child um, or as a younger person, there were times when I, um, I was doing something that I don't think others were. I would use the hose and make a little stream out in front of our yard and make a little waterfall and a little pool. And now I get to do that on a bigger scale with stormwater management um, in my professional life. In high school, um, I was technically the president of the environmental club. Uh, mostly that just meant on Friday afternoon each week, I would go around to the classrooms and pick up the recycling bins to make sure that they actually got recycled. You know, not everybody else was doing that. There were two or three others who would show up when we had pizza, and then um, they would help sometimes. But, uh, but yeah, I think that um, it's been more present for me than for others, and it's something I have noticed. But even if there aren't a lot of people involved, you know, I, it doesn't diminish my enjoyment uh, of protecting natural resources or engaging with um, with the natural environment. It's it's still something that just is endlessly interesting to me. So I sort of want to jump to the Natural Resources District. I wonder how many people are aware of the Natural Resources District. So what is it and what do you do? Yeah, the NRD, uh, we are one of 23 natural resource districts across the state of Nebraska. The name is pretty tricky. It's Papio-Missouri River NRD, and that comes from the Papio, the Papillion Creek Watershed, uh, which merged with the Middle Missouri Tributaries NRD in the 80s, and so it's now Papio Missouri River, the most complicated government agency name I've ever encountered. But the area covers Sarpy County, Douglas County, and then the four counties north up to the um, up to the, the border with South Dakota. Uh, and generally, the NRD works to uh, wisely conserve and protect our natural resources for people in the district. Usually, that's stormwater and soils, uh, but then in other areas that are kind of adjacent to those as well. And and I particularly work in um, in urban stormwater management. Uh, so kind of some of the smaller streams that feed into the big streams or big creeks that you might know in the Omaha metro area, the, the big three would be the Little Papio, the Big Papio and the West Papio. And then there are smaller tributaries that feed into those. And 
that's where a lot of the projects that I work on um, show up. And then the other thing that I uh, that was really the passion that brought me to the NRD was next to a lot of those creeks and streams are the trails that uh, that provide um, recreation and active transportation and access to the natural resources in the community. And the NRD got involved in trails because there was land available to construct them next to creeks. And so um, the overlap between stormwater and trails for me is, uh, is well aligned with what the NRD has been doing over the last few decades. What are the challenges that are being addressed by the NRD? And you've already started talking about some of the opportunities that are presented here too. So, so maybe let's take challenges first. You know, what, are, what are the natural challenges that you're dealing with? Yeah, uh, in the area of water, there's only really two things that can happen, not enough and too much. And uh, in the Omaha metro area, our water supply, uh, our drinking water generally comes from the facilities at the Missouri River and then down by the Platte River. And uh, those are pretty reliable sources of water. And, uh, and so we have a pretty good source. Um, but uh, so there's generally enough water available for everyone. Um, but the, uh, the Papio Creek system is what's called a very flashy watershed, meaning that it's kind of steep. And when water runs in, it gets into the creeks and concentrates very quickly. And so the streams elevate in, uh, in their, the surface comes up quite a lot and can cause flooding pretty readily. That's based on the geography as well as some of the development patterns from the early part of the 1900s. And so mostly what the NRD works on in the Omaha metro area is uh, reducing the risk of flood damage to private property and uh, public infrastructure and the safety and health of the people who live in the community. So that's, that's generally what a lot of the work at the NRD is focused on. Um, we work to construct the dams that uh, hold the water to reduce that risk of peak runoff to, that might cause floods. Uh, there's also recreation areas that go um, around the, the lakes that are formed with those dams. And then in the, the more rural area, there's some um, rural water supply and soil conservation. And there are other staff at the NRD who work in those areas uh, and, and provide you know, access to and protection for those resources to people in that kind of larger geographic area that the NRD serves. What are the kinds of opportunities that NRDs historically have tried to grab and maybe failed to grab? And maybe how are they being a little more active in trying to you know, seize opportunities and create them? I think the, the area of stormwater management in the middle part of the 1900s was basically just to get the water away from people and buildings and get it downstream as fast as possible. And so the post-World War II development patterns introduced a lot of impervious surfaces, rooftops, streets, parking lots, and that concentrated the flow of stormwater during a large rain event. And so the idea was basically, well, let's just get rid of this as fast as we can. And so for a few decades, that was the dominant theory of stormwater management, just push it down as far as you can. And coming from Omaha, going to school in uh, Houston, Houston had concrete lined their creeks and streams in order to move the water through the system even more quickly. But as you continue that pattern of development and the peaks of the storms get even more and more pronounced and more and more water all at once, that concept doesn't really, you can't afford to continue to build a system like that. It just gets too expensive and, uh, and, and can't serve uh, a larger area from the, from the modern form of life that we have. And so I think the more modern stormwater management techniques are tailored around recognizing water as not something that needs to be taken away as quickly as possible, but as a beneficial resource that can really improve the lives of people in the community. People really like to go to the recreation areas at the dam sites. People like to walk on the trails next to the creeks and streams. People like to be at these facilities where they can engage with that, uh, with that, uh, with those natural resources that they might not find, you know, in their own backyard. 
the Papio system isn't a, um, you know, like a national wildlife refuge. It's not Yellowstone, but it still is more natural and you'll find more animals, more plants, um, more other things that you wouldn't find kind of in your own backyard in places where there's a little bit more room for nature to kind of uh, move around and do its thing. And so I think that's generally where things have been kind of trending is to say, this isn't, we shouldn't try and resist and only treat this as a problem that we have to fix. Instead, let's recognize this as a resource and kind of lean into how can we make that a benefit to our community. And I think that's where a lot of the, the policy work in natural resources and stormwater is, is going um, in the future. Over the last sort of 100 years, as we, as we move into increasingly dense urban living, we've tried to bend natural resources to fit the ways that we want to develop the land and to live in it. And it seems that from what you're describing, we're pivoting away from that to have a more um, harmonious and holistic way to live with the natural resources and indeed perhaps to benefit from, from that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, rather than concrete lining channels and saying, let's get the stormwater through here as fast as possible, there's a philosophy called room for the river, where you kind of recognize that this is a natural space that we shouldn't try and contain. Don't put that in a cage and keep it over there away from us. Humans are part of the natural system and we engage with it all the time, whether we recognize it or not. And so we need to be more open to the idea of this is this part of the natural system is something that is larger that we can't really control. Um, and I think we've gotten several good lessons recently that the way that we have built our society, largely particularly in the United States, has come at the edge of that urban wildlife boundary. And, and we are seeing that nature is a little bit bigger and a little bit more um, out of control than I think we generally recognize. And so you end up with wildfires in places where people are, you know, kind of living out in the forests. Um, you end up with uh, flood damages, um, you end up with uh, all kinds of consequences from not treating nature with sufficient respect. And it, both at OPPD, but at the NRD, we had a, a similar type of experience where nature reminded us of what the awesome power and kind of uncontrollability can be in, in 2019. Well, 2011 originally, I wasn't at the NRD at that time, but I was here at, in 2019. And, uh, and that rapid meltdown and simultaneous flooding on the Missouri and Platte and Elkhorn rivers um, was a, a very strong reminder that, um, as, as many people said um, at my office at the time, remember, nature bats last. And so you can do all you want to try and prepare and confine it and contain it and believe that you have the ultimate control. But these systems are big and powerful in ways that we generally can't comprehend. And you know, we, you talk about a 500-year storm, but based on only 100 years worth of data, it's kind of difficult to say that we, do, that we absolutely understand what the ultimate possibilities of the natural system are when we really don't have the records to, to verify that. I mean, the engineering work is solid and good, and, and it, it serves us in all kinds of ways, but believing, okay, we got it. We have 100% of the solution worked out. I think that's hubris that we should be careful about because other things can happen and have happened numerous times in the past. And, and we need to really recognize that that is still a possibility, although it might be remote. Um, you know, the polar vortex might become unstable and might migrate across all of the middle part of the United States down to Texas. When we believe that to be an impossibility, and then we find out that it can actually happen, turns out that some of those systems probably needed to have been more robust in, in the view of what is possible in the natural world. At the start of the end, here comes 
So we're recording this on February the 19th. So uh, last weekend was this brutally cold weather down the spine of the middle of the country and, and you know, affecting millions of people uh, with power outages, rolling blackouts, and currently in Texas, still with millions of people without power. You talked about this sort of lack of humility when it comes to dealing with nature. Indeed, uh, the, the, the converse to that, this kind of hubris uh, associated with how we think we can control nature. And yet we're sort of hearing from, you know, some of our leaders and, and I'll, I'll call some out, um, such as, you know, Governor Ricketts here in Nebraska and Governor Abbott in Texas. And, and, you know, it feels to me that with either sort of incompetent ignorance or, you know, intentional deceit, they, they sought to lay the blame at the door of renewable energy and in turn sought to promote fossil fuel energy. And I just wonder what your take is on that and our failures to have foreseen the consequences of our actions that have yielded the, the sort of traumas that we're seeing this week. There have been a lot of things flying around. And early on, particularly, people, um, social media was filled with people saying all kinds of stuff. Um, and it takes a little while to sort out for more accurate information to kind of filter through and overcome some of the um, inaccuracies that are easy to spring up quickly, but don't really stand up to any scrutiny whatsoever. I think you would find that there are essentially no reasonable professionals who have experience and are using good data who would tell you that renewable energy caused this. That is conclusively not true. You should not say that. Renewable energy was uh, solar and wind was subject to extreme weather conditions, just the same as coal and gas and nuclear and all forms of energy in our system. And so it's really disappointing that uh, people who don't spend enough time working in the area of energy policy might become overconfident at the time when public outcries um, are resounding and say, it's clear what happened here. I know the answer. And that is that is absolutely not true. And we saw that last year in California with a sudden spike and overwhelming heat that caused outages. And immediately people started saying, well, it's all that solar energy. And that ran around the internet and the talking points for a few weeks or maybe even months. And then 
the grid manager in California came out with a comprehensive review of what had occurred, and it was conclusive. No, you cannot lay the blame of that situation squarely on renewable energy. That is not true. Natural gas plants went offline. Grid management was not prepared for the type of heat they were seeing. External resources coming into the pool were not working as expected. And I think the exact same thing is true here, that stories about frozen wind turbines and photos from Sweden from 2014, which are miscaptioned and still shown, um, you know, that type of dishonesty is allowing people to support their prior beliefs without having to do any of the intellectual rigor that is necessary to understand what actually happened. And so it is disappointing to hear people jump to easy conclusions and, uh, and try and force out talking points about, well, we just got to run back to fossil fuels. I, I think that's both um, dishonest to people and irresponsible leadership to do that. And I am extremely grateful that um, my colleagues at OPPD, both on the board and in management, in a lengthy discussion yesterday, covered this in great detail. And there will be additional reports available that highlight, don't jump to these easy, seemingly um, you know, talking point-esque things that you want to believe to be true, they, they, aren't, they aren't true. That's just not how it is. You need to have a more comprehensive understanding. And I look forward to the reports that will come out that will document what has happened over the past week. And also to document uh, that our collaboration with other utilities across the Southwest Power Pool, which is an agency that I would dare anyone more than one week ago to have told me what it means in any, any, <laughs> any reasonable sense whatsoever. But, but now, boy, everybody wants to talk about SPP. Um, our collaboration with other utilities has made us all stronger. And I think it's evident that Texas intentionally went the other direction, drew lines at the state border to avoid federal regulation and oversight, allowed private utilities to extract huge amounts of profit uh, while not making the energy infrastructure investments that were necessary. And in other parts of SPP and in Nebraska and in OPPD, we have made those investments and more are necessary. But um, I think it does demonstrate that there are real values here that we need to stick to, that trying to go alone under the types of conditions that can occur in nature is going to be extremely challenging. We are stronger together. And that is the philosophy that leads to things like the SPP. And, you know, not only 364 days a year, but, you know, 1500 days out of 1501 days, uh, the SPP makes us all stronger. And then in one day where something extreme happens, uh, the, the interconnectivity has actually helped to reduce the severity of the damage to individual locations. And, uh, and, and that's what the uh, planned outages that were called for, that's, that's really what that was by everybody participating in the pool and working to reduce uh, peak load at the absolute most critical times, um, we can avoid terrible things happening like what happened in the Northeast in 2003 and what's happened in Texas over the last week with people having outages of, you know, 72 hours and counting. Those are things we need to recognize and be more aware of and not jump to simple, you know, bullet point conclusions that, um, that, that, don't, uh, that don't, stand up to, uh, don't stand up to the actual investigation that's, that's going to be done.
in a sort of hyper-partisan world where, uh, you know, in America, many people are uh, actually climate change denialists. What is the future of renewables in that environment? And what is the future of renewables, do you think, anyway, given all the other forces that are pushing them forward, be it international, social uh, values, uh, the economics of, of this? Yeah, whether people understand it yet or not, the clean energy transition started several years ago and is well underway. And um, clean energy is less expensive upfront than most other forms of uh, traditional energy generation and doesn't have a lot of the currently externalized costs, most specifically carbon to the atmosphere and uh, other contaminants to um, our you know, air, water, soil, uh, and, and, uh, and people's lives. And, and so, and even with all of those unaccounted for, the cost of clean energy is just continuing to decrease and it is overwhelming opposition. You know, well, it costs too much. That's no longer true. Well, it doesn't work all the time. Actually, no energy source works 100% all the time. That isn't how anything ever works. And we just saw that last week. So, so I think we are seeing that a clean energy transition is underway and it will only continue into the future. And, and that's a good thing because um, clean energy is quite frankly, just more efficient than uh, traditional sources. One example that's kind of easy to look to is an electric vehicle. An electric vehicle is cleaner than a combustion vehicle for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but primarily a combustion vehicle uses about one third of its energy for motion down the road. That's the intended outcome. About one third comes out in heat through the radiator and about one third in heat through the tailpipe. And so two thirds of all the energy you put into um, a traditional gasoline car uh, is lost. It is just not doing productive work that you intend the, the machine to do. In an electric vehicle, something more like 90%, so about three times as much of the energy is translated directly into the desired outcome. And, and the same thing is true in other places as well. Electric motors are just more efficient than, um, than uh, traditional uh, combustion-based systems. And so, you know, in addition to the cost being lower upfront, the energy life cycle energy use is, uh, is a more uh, kind of more beneficial way to organize our society than systems that have to sacrifice huge portions of the energy to, you know, um, to heat loss or to other, uh, other forms that don't lead to the outcomes that we really want. How do we make that accessible to just people like me generally? Uh, so electric cars now aren't cheap, but if the future inevitably is renewables in whatever way, shape or form, what does that mean for just ordinary people to acquire some form of renewable energy, whether it's an electric car or um, I, I certainly would like you to share your own story about solar panels and the use of solar panels, for example. Um, as much as I would love to get some of those on my south-facing uh, roof line, I, I don't even know how to go about that or even if I can afford to do that now. There are a whole bunch of different ways to implement clean energy from the individual scale to the community scale and up to the utility scale. And as you mentioned, I put solar panels on my own home in 2014, um, and they've been doing great for the last seven years. Um, Facebook just gave me a reminder of uh, one of the bills that I marked up and posted six years ago about, here's where the energy is going. Here's my production. Here's what I'm getting from the grid. Uh, interesting that it's been so long, I kind of forgot, boy, it's, it's been a lot of years <laughs> since, since I did that. So that's the individual scale. Um, there is a community solar project that OPPD constructed a few years ago, um, and, uh, and, and that, is, um, that was fully subscribed and is under operation right now. 
And then at the largest scale, uh, OPPD is in the process of acquiring uh, very large solar arrays, four to 600 megawatts of, uh, of peak generation capacity um, that will uh, kind of shift the kind of some of the overall generation at the OPPD scale. So you can install clean energy on your own home if you have the physical ability and, and the financial um, ability to do that. You can participate in community scale projects. And I do hope that there will be more of those available because the first one um, was oversubscribed extremely quickly and there's a waiting list for, um, for future community solar opportunities. Uh, and then uh, OPPD is making changes at the, at the, at the biggest scale also to, to have an impact to everyone at the end of the line so that the original generation of energy that we're doing uh, is cleaning over time. It is, uh, it is becoming less carbon intensive. Uh, it is becoming more renewable. And that is, uh, again, a, a good thing from an environmental perspective, but also uh, it is financially advantageous. And, and I think it will just become more and more compellingly financially advantageous into the future. I wonder if I'm like many people, which is that I'm genuinely interested in making a transition. I just don't quite know how to do it at the moment, um, what the steps are, where to turn, because I'm living in a legacy world of you know markets and economics, pandemic and so many things happening. I'm just not sure if it's something that I can financially step into. I don't know where I should turn and what thoughts you have about that. And secondly, if inevitably, maybe this year doesn't work, but by five years time, as technology and markets improve anyway, this is the direction and it will be easier for people like me to transition into clean energy. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned the idea of legacy and that's an important part is that we have legacy financial systems and legacy businesses and legacy policies that tip all of the advantages toward the way that we have done things in the past. And, and that is a lot of uh, you know, market inertia, uh, which is why it's hard for new technology to overcome um, the previous or the current um, dominant market forces. And so uh, in, you know, in vehicles, an electric vehicle might cost a little bit more upfront right now. It's getting really close. And you mentioned five years. Within five years, I think you should expect to see a similar level of um, luxury in your, uh, in your vehicle, a, similarly, um, a similar trim vehicle. And an all-electric vehicle will be less expensive than its combustion counterpart. And that is upfront cost coupled with the fact that it costs, I can't remember what the numbers are, something like 90% less to operate it over the, uh, after the initial cost um, over the, the term of the life of that vehicle. And so, you know, while the upfront cost is still a problem now, it isn't long-term. Uh, the same is true with clean energy generation where wind and solar are extremely capital intensive, but they have no ongoing fuel costs. And so I think we're starting to recognize more and more that while the initial cost might be high, the, the benefits of the um, lower operational costs long-term and by removing a lot of those currently externalized consequences, that that has a lot of value. And, and we need to really, um, we need to come up with uh, policies and businesses and regulations uh, that will tip in the direction of making uh, what is the, uh, you know, clearly evidently needed uh, action also the economically viable action so that it doesn't cost more to do the, to do the less environmentally damaging thing. And, and I think that's where the policy improvement needs to be focused in the future is helping people to make it, make it easier to eat healthy rather than eating junk food, make it less expensive to buy an electric vehicle than it is to buy a gasoline vehicle, make it, uh, you know, make, remove the barriers that people would say, I can't because of X. Um, we, we need to have policy that points in the direction of things that are 
conclusively better for individuals and for society in general. I'd like to invite you to talk about some of the inequities that are inherent with where energy is available and where energy is produced. Um, maybe I could ask you to share your own story about, as it were, fighting for uh, climate justice, which was your uh, activism at the Standing Rock pipeline protest. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed that we've been talking so long and that I haven't jumped into discussion about climate change yet. We got pretty close earlier, um, but, uh, but this is probably a new personal best of, of holding off on that one. Um, I mentioned that, um, that, you know, it's been my entire life. Uh, James Hansen uh, presented to Congress in 1988. And at that time, scientists felt conclusive that the evidence was conclusive enough that they should go and present to the United States Congress Climate change is real. It is caused by carbon dioxide emissions from humans, and the consequences will be severe and felt disproportionately by people who have had the least contributions to the to the cause. And, and that was literally more than thirty years ago. And uh, and since then, we have kind of lost our way on understanding the scientific and factual information, and allowed, as you mentioned earlier, people to to deny or use the term they don't believe in climate change. Uh, the good thing about science is it's true whether you believe it or not. And, and that is, uh, I think that the climate, climate discussions in particular are the best example imaginable that you don't get to not believe in this. Um, you can not believe in gravity, but it's still going to pull you down to the ground. And, and the same is true with climate. You cannot believe, but it's still going to destabilize the polar vortex. It's still going to make things hotter in the summer and, um, and increase the intensity of storms and uh, the, the risk of wildfires. All of those things are still going to happen, whether you say that you believe it or not. So it's not really an issue of believing in climate change. It's more of an issue of understanding the science behind climate change. And so that's really where I think the discussion needs to remain focused. And people who set policy and people who work in this area really need to remember that uh, we, we cannot allow the discussion to move to the area of belief. That isn't what we're talking about. We, we, cannot, ha we cannot run a society on the idea that we can choose to not believe something because it doesn't fit with the prior economics or businesses or market structures that we've had, that just isn't going to work. We have to do better. We have to have better technical and scientific information and then work within what we know to be verifiable and true. And we have come out of a period, the last four years in particular, were extremely rough for numerous people in all kinds of ways that five years ago we would have thought incomprehensible. And in the area of energy and climate policy, we have 
experienced four years of intentional misinformation and denial and outright lies and not so cleverly disguised policy attempts to put a thumb on the scale of, um, quite frankly, a fossil fuel industry that is losing economic competitiveness against clean energy. And so that era, um, I hope to be winding down rapidly with a change in administration at the federal level, where just, I, I can't believe that we're at the point where saying just admitting that facts are true is a step forward, but that's, that's really where we were uh, in January with the transition. And so that is, that is an extremely, it's been a difficult type of place to work in natural resources and energy policy for the last few years. Um, but I, I hope that it is, I hope that it is moving forward. And, uh, you know, at the federal level, I think that's going to be true. I hope that at the state and the local level that we recognize that we need to be more open and honest and involved and focused in uh, a climate action plan for how we're going to mitigate the causes of climate change and then adapt to the changes that have already occurred and will continue to intensify into the future because that is extremely important. And on both sides, uh, mitigation of the causes and adaptation to the to the consequences. You mentioned the idea of justice, and that is something that is incredibly important to me. I, I don't know how to frame it exactly. Um, if the if the best terminology is environmental justice, or if it's something like energy democracy or climate equity, um, all of those kind of revolve around the same idea that the way we get energy and the way we use energy and the way the consequences of our energy system are experienced by different people uh, needs to be recognized and it needs to be incorporated into our policymaking. And so we do have a lot of work to do in that area and that is an extremely difficult thing to try and unwrap. How will we make those changes in the future so that we don't uh, incorporate additional systemic inequity um, on top of what we know to be an, you know, an, an inequitable system in lots of other ways. How are we going to avoid that as we make this clean energy transition? To many, the idea of climate change, climate justice, um, energy democracy can feel abstract when, when framed in those ways. But when I perhaps suggest some examples to you just to see what your thoughts are, High particulate matter producing polluting power plants typically are based in impoverished communities, often where minorities live. So, so they're the ones subject to the ills of production of the energy that other people are using. Um, if we think about the wise use of uh, water that you were talking about earlier, and then I only need to say Flint, Michigan, for people to understand how this can affect you directly at a personal family level. These are just a, a couple of thoughts about how climate justice, uh, you know, environmental inequity can exist in our communities. And, and I wonder if you have any other thoughts about, you know, how that actually shows up in our real lives. This isn't an abstract thing. It really does affect you. Yeah, the, the idea of, of environmental justice, let's, let's go with that term for right now. Um, the, that idea across the country is a, is a complicated one because uh, barring some maybe specific examples, there were there were not um, people who looked at maps and said, "Let's cause damage to this part of our community intentionally because we know we want to hurt them." Um, but the systems of injustice in lots of other areas, uh, in uh, economics and in housing policy, redlining, in education, all of those compounded to lead to conclusions where 
people who uh, have lived next to and been most impacted by the consequences of our fossil energy system in the past have traditionally uh, been more likely to be black and brown communities. And, and that has been, you know, again, it was not an intentional specific agenda of let's do this negative thing to hurt these people. Um, but it was, I mean, people talk about uh, where systemic racism occurs. And this is another example uh, that there have been policies in places around the country, um, Cancer Alley in Louisiana and um, the, uh, the refining operations in Houston. And you mentioned earlier the, the pipeline and the opposition that came at Standing Rock. That was, uh, that was an example, uh, a, an attempt to force a consequence on one group of people who didn't want it. Yeah, I think the protest at Standing Rock was a good demonstration. Uh, I mean, <laughs> physically a good demonstration by experienced activists who were um, looking to protect, uh, you know, treaty rights and sovereign land rights. And, and also it was a good uh, kind of reminder to uh, a wider community who might not have physically been there or might not have connected with the idea that we need to keep in mind what the impacts of our energy policy and our energy projects and our wider society are uh, to people who have traditionally been marginalized and had the least ability to participate in the normal processes that would allow uh, you know, uh, a different community to stop a project like that from happening. I hope that it continues to inspire more people uh, to, to engage in topics like this and uh, demonstrate that if it's not a project that is in the best interest of the people who will be directly impacted, you need to really think through um, whether or not that is a project that, uh, that needs to occur. And, and uh, you know, I do this professionally. Um, you don't want to force a project on someone who doesn't want it. Um, there are legitimate uses for eminent domain um, for public benefit projects, but a private for-profit pipeline by an international company to move oil through the United States to an, uh, an international export market. I mean, the idea that that is justifiable as eminent domain is not in line with my own views, we would say. Uh, that's, that just, and I think enough people agree with that, that, um, that that's what led to uh, the, you know, the, the direct action that was occurring there and ongoing direct action in other places, because that's not the last pipeline that is attempting to be constructed. And so, you know, more people need to be involved in uh, helping to protect small communities relative to the larger country or, or the world and, and, uh, and to ensure that their rights are respected and that we don't continue to disproportionately hurt some uh, select groups who have, been, uh, who have been punished over and over for decades and, and hundreds of years. i
We're seeing the impact of our unwillingness to confront a swifter transition to a more harmonious relationship with our natural resources. What is it then that gives you hope for the future? And how might people listening find hope when it seems we're still fighting to take the right action? A couple of years ago, um, I picked up a copy of Hope in the Dark which is an excellent book. I'm not sure if you've read it or if others um, who are hearing this might have, but it's an excellent book. And I needed it because uh, the kind of uh, scrambling, uh, light everything on fire simultaneously and bet that we won't be able to put out all the fires policies of the last administration, that strategy was overwhelming. And, and I really struggled to understand what we should do. I think the part of that book that connected with me the most is that um, a description of hope as, uh, you know, hope is not a blanket that you wrap yourself in, uh, but hope is an action. And hope is an ax that you grab to chop down the door in an emergency, I think is how she described it. And, uh, and, and I think that hope as an action verb and a call to do what you know is necessary to avoid terrible things from happening, I think that's, that's kind of the view of hope that, um, that works for me and, uh, and where I've been kind of where I've been focused over the last few years and, and where I'd like to continue to focus in the future. And I mean, even with all of the uh, complexities that continue and the, and the long tail consequences that we will surely have for the next couple of years. Uh, and, and to be sure, not all of our problems started between January of 2017 and ended in January of 2021. That is, that is an overly simplistic view. We have been doing things that needed to be corrected for a very long time, and we have many, many more to go, even on top of the actions that the Biden administration might have already taken in climate or in other policy areas. Um, but uh, but the, I, I just, I, I think that connected with me well at the time, and I'm, I'm glad you asked because I, uh, I have a copy of the audiobook, and it's probably time to get it out and, uh, and load it up and, and run through it again because um, this, this week has been very difficult. Um, you know, recognizing some of the fragility in our system and uh, in the ways that unexpected things can come up, and how should we be prepared to respond in the future, and, and how, do we, uh, how do we act when um, with uncertainty? Um, being, uh, you know, the, the, the playing field. How should we continue to set policy and develop programs and projects uh, under those conditions? I, I think that um, that, you know, that particular uh, idea of hope really worked for me. And um, I'm, I will find others, uh, I'm sure. But, uh, but you know, at, at this moment, when you ask right now, that's the first thing that jumped into my mind. My guest today has been Eric Williams, the natural resources planner at the Papio Missouri River Natural Resources District and the elected official for Subdivision 6 of the Omaha Public Power District. Eric, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for uh, sharing your insights with us on the show. Glad to be here. Glad to be talking with you and working with the community to develop clean energy and local power. I hope that wasn't too forced. Uh, I, I wasn't sure how long we were going to go there, but uh, but that's something I've really focused on. I mean, it's 
and and I do mean it in every sense. I say it often. It's something um, like kind of um, kind of like tagline words that I, I worked on during the campaign because um, you know clean energy everybody's familiar with, but local power meaning both in the sense of a public uh, power district that provides the needs of the people, but local power in the sense of control. I, and this week has been a really interesting example where um, in Texas there is not local control. There are external corporate shareholders that control the decisions that put those people in a lot of risk. And and in Omaha and in Nebraska, we have local control over our utilities. And uh, it's just, uh, that's a really inspiring concept to me that we directly elect the people who have the ultimate authority and responsibility for our utilities. And so um, that, that, that expression is something I like to say a lot. And they're kind of uh, guiding words that really help me um, remember, you know, why I'm doing this and why I think this is important. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.